the state of the race for the White House. The Democrats get ready for their first huge debate while the president says he's winning in all the important polls. Is Donald Trump beatable? Which Democrat is going to beat him? We ask all these questions and more. The Fury Theory starts right now. The Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. I am joined by my colleagues, John Easton, the E. Hello. And Adam Belmar, the B. Guys, Joe Biden and Donald Trump went to Iowa, an interesting place to go, really fun this time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had their first huge skirmish. Uh, I think Joe Biden likes it because he wants to be seen as the big kahuna that's going to take on Donald Trump. Uh, he got that for that his trip to Iowa. He got called mentally weak by the president, which is, you know, so wonderful. Well, the vice president called the president an existential threat to our values. John Easton, who won this first skirmish in the race for the White House? Does anybody really win that skirmish? I mean, it's it's pretty pathetic, really. But it's what we're going to see for really the next, you know, 18 months, I guess. And what we also know that President Trump is calling Joe Biden is sleepy, creepy Joe. <laughs> and, of course, the, the be-all, end-all, if you get named called by, by President Trump, loser. So you got that too going, but and and Democrats have been calling Donald Trump an existential threat since November of 2018, so uh, or 2016. I'm sorry. So we're used to that, but honestly, this is just really the kickoff of of this of this race, really. And then after the debates, uh, the the true horse race begins because we're going to see people fall off. But this is just kind of a little appetizer. So Adam. When your kids, do they come up with nicknames for other kids? Isn't that not allowed in public school anymore? You can't really call your friend Sleepy Joe or Creepy Joe. Or I mean, This seems like the name calling, will it have any kind of impact on our culture? Or is this kind of is it built in now? Well, it's a facet of the president's personality, persona, and political strategy. So it's really important for him. And people like it, especially people who like the president. You know, they expect innovation on the nickname front. <laughs> they want to move forward. And uh, he's really made nicknames great again. He has made it, yes. Sleepy Joe, does it work? Sleepy Creepy Joe, <laughs> uh, which I, I kind of like. I mean, I don't uh, Does it work? Uh, you know, low energy when it came to Jeb Bush, that seemed to kind of sting a little bit yeah. and that left a mark. Uh, so it, 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 it might. And what did they call Hillary? What was Hillary's convict? Crooked Hillary. Crooked Hillary. I think that kind of worked pretty well, don't you think? Yeah, no, it was a, it was a, a wonderful uh, uh, element of the campaign. You always were waiting to see what what the Donald would do. You know, as we get closer, and and, and you talk about Iowa, the first sort of uh, skirmish, if you will. They were both in the state, which is really significant. Um, it's the debates as we get closer, and this entire process is about differentiation. A differentiation for the Democrats amongst themselves and differentiation on issues. So the press will be looking at how do we get some daylight between these folks? Do they all believe the same thing? Do they all characterize the president the same way? If so, you know, how do you decide who you like more? You've got to be able to separate yourself from your opponents, both on the other side and on the dais. And uh Talking about the polls, because everyone's kind of fixated on the polls, the president has polls somewhere that show him winning. 
But no one actually has had a chance to see those polls. I don't. I don't. I think the polls are way too early until the president has a chance to really go after one Democrat. Um, but uh, John Easton, looking at, does this hurt his credibility? Is this good spin, or you know, making this stuff up, or is it just kind of another example of the president kind of saying stuff that's not true? Yeah, I think that's it, and I think people are starting to get kind of almost immune to this daily digest of falsehoods or exaggerations and. And uh, for polling, I think it probably means a little something more to the Democrats at this juncture because there's so many of them running for president. They're all wanting to you know, get a leg up in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so it, it's just uh, it, it means it much more for, for those guys, really. And, and, but Trump can't help it. I mean, if, he, if somebody says he's down in most of the polls against Biden and against Bernie Sanders, or he's going to fight back with something. And you saw that. Yeah, and Adam, I, I agree with that. I think that I think actually it's pretty good spin. That, you know, if he says, if the president says, yeah, I'm way down in the polls, I don't know what to do about it, you know, then he's kind of losing, and he doesn't like to lose. Yes, and, and, and what the president said uh, specifically was that he has some internal polling that is not uh, referencing the overarching narrative, the RCP rolling average, poll of polls, uh, he's saying we're seeing something very different. One thing that if you follow the social media element of running for president in the, this age, right, started uh, or sort of reached its zenith previously in 16, um, they've been spending an inordinate amount of money. Uh, and in that, they've gathered a tremendous amount of data, and they're constantly refining the Trump group, uh, what messages resonate with their base, how they deliver it. They're differentiating themselves in terms of um, portals or platforms that they use. That in and of itself is a very interactive type of polling. It's not gathering information from uh, humans directly, like, how do you feel? Um but you get a palpable response. You see how they react. And then you try to uh, epitomize the things that are working with your rhetoric. And, and that they're doing so expertly. The president and his team are way ahead of the Democrats when it comes to exercising the polling that matters. And I think that's probably right. And I think that that was a huge advantage that Barack Obama had over Mitt Romney precisely because he was able to spend all this money on that kind of stuff while the Democrats are all trying to, they've got this gang of 45 trying to get noticed, and they're spending their money on getting noticed, not on the kind of scientific stuff that you're talking about. Talking about the gang of 45, there's really one and then the rest, and the one is Joe Biden. Joe Biden's getting pulled to the left, though, John, John Easton. He's getting left, uh, pulled to the left, especially on things like the Hyde Amendment, which, you know, he was a long proponent of the Hyde Let's Amendment. Let's define that for the folks. Hyde, the Hyde Amendment basically is a compromise that's been in law that says abortion can be legal, but taxpayers don't have to pay for it. Now, the Democrats are saying, no, no, taxpayers have to pay for it through Medicaid and, and Medicare, mostly Medicaid, uh, and, but the, the, they have to pay for it because for them this is a social justice thing. Joe Biden had previously been pro-life changed his position and is now his compromise position had been you know the Hyde Amendment and now it's all about um, you know we got to give uh, abortion dollars for poor people um, being pulled to the left is this going to help Joe Biden win the win the election for the nomination and or will and hurt him in the general election or will it have any impact whatsoever well, I think that's one of the reasons why you saw the speech in Iowa that you did. Uh, he attacked or mentioned, but mostly attacked, Donald Trump 76 times. Right. I think that he has to keep his foot on the pedal 
you know, against and, and on the offense against Donald Trump all the way through this, in part to mask, you know, decades of policy positions where a lot of times he was a, a moderate voice. He was a moderate vote. And he's he's Catholic. And so the Hyde Amendment, I don't think really surprised that many people. But to your point, John, the party is here and he's saying, well, gosh, I'm in the in the in the primary fight of my life. I've got to go here. I mean, you remember something. 2008, Joe Biden got four percent in Iowa in the Iowa caucus from Iowa caucus goers. So uh, and I get it. He's since he's been vice president. He uh, is sort of this, this big national front runner now, uh, but he can't afford to take major policy positions, keep them, and still keep the base. I think it's going to be a really tricky, tricky thing for him to navigate, but authenticity is also a, a massive part of this, and I think that for the Kamala Harris's of the world, for the Pete Buttigieg or... or um, you know, some of those who are even um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, those who are sort of in that top tier, you got to maintain some authenticity while also trying to break out a little bit, get noticed. Right. And that Hyde Amendment vote, I, I think to those who aren't part of just your, your, your Democratic base, really the left of the, of the base, it could be a little bit of a problem because people might take a second look and say, that ah, seems a, a little bit uh, inauthentic, and I don't like that. So, You know, that's a really good point, John, because authenticity means standing by your record. Mm-hmm. And he has got a long record. And if it's part of his kind of campaign shtick is to say, I'm, I'm actually – anything that I did in the past is no longer relevant, then, then why, why are we voting for him? Adam Belmar, thinking about Joe Biden, what exactly – does he stand for you know is he and i think that part of this is part of his charm is that this idea of electability this is the only guy that can beat trump but you know he's got to stand for something doesn't he yes now look i've been a republican my entire life and uh as a political consultant i am constantly looking here at efb advocacy for ways to move Uh, issues forward and find common ground. And so I want to answer this with some respect for the former vice president, a man for whom I will never vote regardless of where his political stances are. But I do accept the fact that over this very long political career, he's had just about every position. He's tried everything on. This was a little too warm. This bed was too soft. I find him what's right for me. But you know what? At his age, the world has changed and he can't let it pass him by if he wants to be president in this era. So he's reevaluating. And I think that's the argument that he's making about where I am today, a principled leader. But uh, I think authenticity means being principled and sticking up for what you said. And uh, it's a very hard fight for, for, for Joe Biden to explain all of these changes. We want to call them flip-flops. You want to call them progressive changes in his interpretation and understanding. The country has moved philosophically, morally, and he's trying to keep up. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, and he's got to sell it. Well, and the other thing I'd add to your point, Adam, is within the Democratic Party, and this is uh, from Gallup, within the Democratic Party, now for the first time, a majority of Democrats call themselves or self-identify as liberals. That's 51%. And if you think about that, that that is what Joe Biden is facing, really. And I think that's no surprise because we can kind of feel the energy moving 
moving left. Um, you know, nationally, it's 35% conservative, 35% moderate, and 26% liberal. So while the liberal numbers are coming up a little bit, it's still a center-right country. That's also what Joe Biden's got to deal with and if he makes it to the general election. So here he is, you know, trying to thread this needle throughout the primary. And, and if, if you're so expedient with your positions to try to capture those voters, I mean, this is a, that, that is a moral position that he was taking on the Hyde Amendment. As a moral, it's not tax policy. That's not energy policy. We're not talking about wind energy or something. Like that. We're talking about you know a, a an abortion which is deeply moral to the um, wherever you are on the, on the spectrum of abortion, pro choice, pro life, whatever. But it is very very moral, and it just there there it went. Uh, well, I think that's a good point. Now, almost all major democratic democratic contenders or leaders who were pro-life have become pro-choice. True. And, and, and Donald true. Trump was pro-choice at one point in time and pro-life. The fascinating thing for me is how they brand themselves. And from Donald Trump, Donald Trump wasn't branding himself as being pro-life, although he became pro-life. He was branding himself on things that viscerally connected with a ascendant class in the, in the Republican Party, which was he was anti-war, where the party had been pro-war. He was anti-free trade, where the party had been pro-free trade. And he wanted he was anti open borders where the Republicans had been pretty much okay let's let all the immigrants we can get in um, and so he had changed the party and branded himself as being kind of this insurgent outsider. Joe Biden can't really brand himself as an outsider because he's the he's the ultimate, he's the insider. ultimate insider he's the ultimate insider and so for him when he changes positions that were part of his political persona for so many years it actually makes a deeper mark, I think. And I think for Biden, you know, he's an old guy in a young party, which is not unusual for Democrats because you got Nancy Pelosi, she's old, and you got, you know, um, Chuck Schumer is not as old as, as Nancy Pelosi. But well, and, and Hillary was and just Hillary. the standard bearer. Exactly. Yeah. They're old leaders and younger, a younger party. And so do they have, the question I have, John Eason, do they have the patience for Joe Biden and his, you know, old ways? It's a great question. I, I think what you're seeing uh, right now is this: it's such a deep desire to beat Donald Trump. So I think right now, Joe Biden does get, I think, the benefit of the doubt. He's established. He's, he's a he's a fighter. He does have that blue collar stick. That is truly essential to Joe Biden's candidacy. He needs that. Um, and, and I think where it's Pennsylvania or it's Wisconsin, Michigan, I mean, he's got to have that in order to, to win. Uh, and and to have a chance in the general election. So you've got these, for instance, the tariff issues. He's going and he's trying to say, well, these tariffs are hurting all you, you know, farmers who depend on, you know, open borders, free trade. Uh, that's also a dicey dynamic because Donald Trump, for a lot of those voters, is seen as standing up to China, right. uh, saying, you know, whether it's Mexico or whether it's Japan, whoever, that, you know, we've gotten a raw deal. And I think for now, even those farmers who have really kind of, you know, suffered under some of these um, trade policies of, of this administration, they're still giving him some leash because they like him standing up to other countries. That is a dynamic there because Joe Biden's going in and really hitting the president on trade. Right. So where does that end up? I don't know. I think that's a fascinating point because um, the Democrat Party has for a long, long time been protectionist. Right. 
And Joe Biden now has become Mr. Free Trader. And he voted for PNTR. He voted for NAFTA. He's voted for every trade agreement he can get his hands on. And now he's the standard part of, for a party that has been very protectionist in the past. Adam Belmar, if it's not going to be Joe Biden, who's it going to be? I refuse to answer that question what? definitively because the process— Let me talk to my viewers. He refused to answer the question. The process that we are about to go through is so scrumptious <laughs> that I don't want to forego the tasting, the sampling, the smorgasbord <laughs> that awaits me. I will uh, scarf it down. Uh, let me just say, I was a producer at ABC News in 2007. We had a very large Democratic slate of candidates in the year that Barack Obama uh, won the nomination and went on to win the presidency. And we did the first round of Democratic presidential candidates debates in Iowa in August of 2007. And I was a lead producer on this project. Now, at that time, there were like seven or eight people. We've got 24 today. Um, the questions that the journalists will ask are hopefully ones that will elicit substantive daylight between the candidates. In like 30 seconds? They got 30 seconds in. There's some fundamental problems with the format. I'll grant you that. Um, but just like my my now 15-year-old uh, son, he doesn't need to watch the whole NBA playoff game. He's going to go watch the highlights because they'll just crunch it down to the highlights. So if you don't make the highlight reel, it's like you didn't even make it. They're worried about getting on the stage. Right. The truth of the matter is you can be on the stage, not make the highlight reel, and, highlight reel, and you might as well have stayed home altogether. And getting on the highlight reel means two things. One, your pithy soundbite attacking Donald Trump, but everyone's going to have one of those. Right. So you got to shiv your neighbor. I got to shiv my neighbor. And the real question is how serious are these folks about getting the money into their coffers to help sustain their campaign? If they can't take a punch at Joe Biden because they want to be in his administration if he gets elected, or they wanted to get some name recognition so that they could run again later, that's not how Donald Trump won. Donald Trump took a scorched earth, you know, kill everything that moves. Uh, approach to things and you know what it worked you know and actually you're right and just a comment on that what worked wasn't just that you know this this new style of barroom brawling he was himself and he still is right and people absolutely who, sure people whether it was the apprentice or his book or you know whatever seeing donald trump over the years in the tabloids or you know on you know access hollywood or, that's, that's a bad example but <laughs> <laughs> you know hollywood tonight or any of these shows it, he just didn't really change. And so when people saw him with his comments and his name calling on it, well, that's the way he's always been in, in New York. And, and, and so uh, the question to me is, you know, how much uh, – are there going to be any similarities from the 2016 primary of Republicans where you have this guy just yeah. going at it and different, very different candidacy? Uh, and what's 2020 going to be like? I will say this. I thought that Donald Trump lost every single debate, and lo and behold, he won every yeah. single debate because yeah. he spoke in plain language, but he also, it was like he was on a mission from God. I mean, it was like he would say stupid things, but people didn't care because they liked him, but they liked him because he was a symbol of something bigger. Are you talking about then or now? I'm talking about then and now. Yeah. He was a symbol of something bigger, and what it was is he was going to shake up the political establishment, and all these jokers 
who uh, are part of the political establishment don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I think that, that you know, it's a diff- different dynamic with the Democrats because uh, they still like government. And um, and it's going to be really interesting to see, to your point, it is like it's, it's like the Indy 500. And if you're in a car and you try to take out another car, you're both crashing, right? And you saw that with Chris Christie and Marco Rubio. I mean, they... Chris Christie just shivved Marco Rubio, and that yep. was that was the end of both their campaigns. Mm-hmm. And so you got to be real careful about who you're taking. Your most important thing is to just speed as fast as you can, try to get ahead of the pack. And you know, right now the front runner in the pack is Joe Biden, just because everyone's heard of him. The question is, who will take him out, and then who will emerge? So I'm going to ask you this question: um, Looking in, there's, there's they say there's five tickets out of Iowa. Uh, John Easton, who are your five? Right now, the top five that you think will get the ticket out of Iowa to go to New Hampshire. Well, this will change 17 times. But, um, okay, so let's just say Joe Biden's one of them because of our conversation and because everybody thinks so. So let's just go with the conventional wisdom on that. Although I I don't think he's going to be very strong coming out of Iowa. I just don't. I think think, – he is yes, he's the front runner. Look at what has happened to front runners in the past. I and I think um, his time may have passed. And I and I, I was one who said he probably wasn't going to get in, and I don't think he should have gotten in. I still don't think so. But I think that uh, Kamala Harris is definitely in in my uh, top five. I think you have to put Bernie Sanders in, but I also think Bernie Sanders' high watermark was 2016 in the primaries. Um, Pete Buttigieg, I mean, I put him in there because he's just sort of that um, he occupies a niche in the Democratic world that's really important. And I think that it'll it'll keep him up there a little a little bit. And I'm just going to throw Andrew Yang in there just just because he's so dark horse. But I like the guy. He's kind of interesting. I, I would love to put Michael Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado in there because I really like him, but uh, I don't think that's practical. I will answer your question by starting with some differentiation from my esteemed colleague, uh, Mr. Easton. I will put uh, Senator Gillibrand on my list of five. Um, I agree on Sanders, Biden, Buttigieg, and Kamala Harris. Uh, it's it's going to be Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden. Peter, Pete the Mayor, Kamala Harris, and I think Elizabeth Warren. And I think Elizabeth Warren right now has the big mo because she has all these policy proposals, and it makes me slightly queasy because I think she might get the nomination, and I think that would be a, a tough one for, for Trump. But we'll see. Uh, that being said, um, John Easton, you're going to start with us. What are you buying or selling today? And I hope you have a prop for us. I might have a prop. But uh, first, I, I have to go back to, and I'm going to buy a couple words that my uh, partner Adam Bar- Belmar used, scrumptious and scarf. <laughs> <laughs> he used those words in, in our episode today. And I just, those are some of my two favorite words, especially scarf. Anytime I can use scarf in a sentence, I, I try to. Um, I just finished up a, a coaching a, a, a softball team uh, this spring. They are 6th, 7th, and 8th graders that my daughter is on. And um, they are a Capitol Hill team. We, we went 8-3 and three this season. Uh, very successful season uh, that uh, had a lot of fun. And um, I have to say, I'm going to pull out the, their practice shirts that they use. So here's my prop. But what's really interesting isn't just this Capitol Hill fast pitch um, um, logo here on the front it's, it's great it's a great logo by the way thank you but it's who sponsored them 
Look at this. It's EFBI because, see, I know you're really shocked. But uh, just wanted to let everybody know, and, of course, it is anything but soft is a hashtag. But uh, EFB Advocacy is out there in the community doing great things. Well done. Well done, John Easton. Uh, Adam Belmar, what are you buying or selling today? I am uh, buying the kind of uh, actions that uh, John Easton is talking about. In light of the fact that it is Father's Day this weekend, I'm, I'm buying, putting out the buy order on dads. Here's a great dad, a great coach, a great partner, a great friend. Another one right here coaching uh, around the clock, uh, around the calendar for his kid. Um, Dads are so important, and uh, sometimes uh, when we're thinking about every other mel- you know, member of our family, we forget how important dads are. It's a great weekend to celebrate fathers, and I hope everybody celebrates their own and the ones in their community that they most respect. So bye-bye-bye, Father's Day. Well done. I'm going to sell uh, the World Cup women's uh, United States soccer team. Um, I watched that game. I, was, uh, I had to watch that game. Um, I saw those women, and I was very proud of them scoring those goals. But, you know, when you score the 13th goal, you don't really need to do all the things that they did, like they, it was their first goal ever. I mean, act like you've been there before. Act like you've been in the end zone before. I know that it goes back and forth, and people are defending them. But come on, ladies. You beat them 13 to nothing. You don't need to rub their noses in it. I think it was bad for, bad for America and bad for women's soccer. That's just my opinion. Hopefully that gets some comments on the Fury Theory podcast brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent Excellent for for business. business. Yeah, baby.